2: Hello, you're listening to Nerdette from WBEasy in Chicago. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. Before we jump in, a friendly reminder. We are still doing
3: a Game of Thrones recap
2: every week with Peter Segel. He is the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me.
3: If, like us, you're watching Game of Thrones every Sunday night. Or maybe, maybe even on Monday morning, Monday mornings, for those of us who like to go to bed early. <laughs> you can join us each Monday as we meet up with Peter to discuss what's what and who's who in the Seven Kingdoms. That's a bonus episode each week to this, our
2: regular show. And in our regular show, you hear many different things, right? Like nerd confessions and homework from special guests.
3: And you get to know great lady nerds of history. This week, we're talking about Rosie the Riveter. I love that bicep. (laughs) That's all in addition to our
2: interview this week with Jatia Taylor. She is a non-proliferation technical specialist at Argonne National Labs.
3: This may or may not mean that she is, in fact, saving the world kind of
2: all of the time. We'll talk to her about what it means when your job title includes the word non-proliferation.
3: And we'll talk to her about one of her other passions, which is getting kids, especially girls, excited about science. All that and more this week on Nerdette. Because everybody's a little nerdy about something.
1: Make it snappy, nerd! Nerds! Nerds!
3: This week's Great Lady Narrative History is Rosie the Riveter. Rosie the Riveter first appeared on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post on Memorial Day, May 29th, 1943.
1: Weather, rain or shine. She's a part of the assembly land. She's making
3: history working for victory. Rosie. Brrr. The She's not a real the person. Side, the model that Norman Rockwell used wasn't even actually a riveter, but she became an icon for women's defense workers. The
1: riveter, Rosie's got a boyfriend, Charlie. Charlie, he's a Marine. Rosie is protecting Charlie. Working overtime on the riveting machine. When they gave her a production
3: knee, she was as proud as a girl could be. There's something true about red, white, and
1: blue about Rosie. The riveter... we are still short millions of hands. We must call upon women. In war towns all over the United States, women are called upon to leave their homes and take jobs. Among our young, unmarried women, and among older women whose children are grown, we have a large reserve. They discover that factory work is usually no more difficult than housework. Employers find that women can do many jobs as well as men, some jobs better. The government's policy is that women should get the same pay that men get for similar work. What do you do with your money? Save it. By the end of 1943, one out of every three women will be at work.
0: Did women return to their homes and families and become 1950s TV mothers like June Cleaver on Leave it to Beaver? No. The number of working women never again fell to pre-war levels.
1: Rosie, 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 the Riveter, on the ocean.
3: That was Sheridan Harvey of the Library of Congress, newsreel footage from 1943, and the song Rosie the Riveter performed by the four vagabonds, helping us get to know great lady nerd of history, Rosie the Riveter. I bet right now you're picturing the red bandana, the bicep, the We Can Do It, and that's become known as Rosie the Riveter. But that's actually not Norman Rockwell's Rosie the Riveter. The bicep and the bandana, that's actually J. Howard Miller's. Sheridan Harvey of the Library of Congress actually does a great dissection of the differences between the J. Howard Miller, We Can Do It, and Norman Rockwell's Rosie the Riveter, which have gotten muddled in history into one thing in our minds. We'll put a link to that YouTube video on our website.
2: You can hear more about Rosie the Riveter and other great lady nerds of history at nerdetpodcast.com. As we mentioned earlier, Jatia Taylor is a non-proliferation technical specialist at Argonne National Labs. And before we jump in, can we just talk for a second about how cool national labs are? Yeah, it doesn't take a very deep dive into the internet to figure out how amazing national labs are and how much, like, really cool stuff has come out of them over the past 80 years in the U.S. too. DVD technology, battery-powered cars, new elements, new elements! A 3D map of the sky, refrigeration. These are the guys who figured out what killed the dinosaurs. There's just over a dozen labs. Labs across the U.S. and they're all a part of the Department of Energy. And it's just like crazy cool.
3: I'm pretty convinced that if there are superheroes living among us, some of them work at Argonne National Lab, I got a chance not that long ago to emcee an event they were doing for a bunch of kids called STEM Fest, where they did an energy slam, and they had people who were experts in different kinds of renewable energy get up and make the case as to why they thought their energy source was the coolest. They, of course, give the disclaimer that they think that because they're a part of the Department of Energy and all of the above strategy (laughs) is best, but they had somebody up there making the case for solar, for wind, and Jatia was making the case for nuclear power. But she couldn't do any of the things she does now, work at Argonne or teach kids about science, if she hadn't studied engineering first in college. We asked if she knew what engineers did, and if she didn't, why did she
4: decide that that's what she wanted to study in school? I got into engineering because my mother bribed me. What? Quite honestly. She said, and it's very funny because it should have been, like, just natural for me, But she said, I want to be a business major. I was like, that has numbers in it. I'm good with numbers. And because I just wanted, you know, to work and I want to fire people. It was around the time (laughs) of Melrose Place when I graduated from high school. And I was like, I want to be Amanda and wear, you know, the shoulder pads and fire people. So business, (laughs) clearly. And so ambitious. Yes, you know, small things. It was either that or I wanted to be a Spice Girl, and that was taken. Okay, so, and okay. That, wasn't a, yeah. that wasn't a major available. Right, so. right. right. Okay. <laughs> um, or I would have gone to Spice Girl University. Um, Is that a BA or a BS? <laughs> probably BS. I'm pretty sure it's a BS. Okay, okay. Um, so she said, you know, if you major in engineering and you do well, I will buy you a car. And... To that, deal. That's all I needed. <laughs> that's all I need. I was like, I really don't know what I want to do anyway. And so why not? And then I got into the science classes and, and that sort of thing. And they were difficult. And I kind of, you know, I was just an uh, okay student. You know, I, I actually... Was kind of a hook and crook student, I'd say. So I'd take an AP class and then get a B because then it's a four. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. Fine. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so I don't have to work as hard, but I still get the same four. Yeah, that's, yeah. I feel like that's kind
2: of what I did. It was right. like just ever so slightly above average, but like I still didn't work as hard as I. And that
3: sounds sort yeah. of like engineering your own GPA, though. Like you sort yeah. of hacked your yeah. GPA.
4: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So. It challenged the classes challenged me. I had to think a little harder, and I wanted to do well I wanted, because there were a lot of guys in the class, and they were smug, and I wanted to beat them. And so I started getting good grades, and I was like, hey, I'm kind of good at this. I wanted to do biomedical engineering because, like many women, I wanted to help people. And when we think about helping people, we think about the health sciences, Um, But there's tons of ways to help people in engineering. And so I was going along. My school did not have a biomedical track, so I ended up in industrial engineering undergrad, which is kind of business engineering. It's putting systems together, um, making sure all the different interfaces of a system work together to provide services or provide products. Um, A lot of industrial engineers work for manufacturers, making sure the product goes from the concept to the actual product or the service goes from the concept to the product. And I thought that was cool, putting stuff together and, and making it work. I just really loved it. I loved the the tinkering, the tinkering of everything about engineering. Like engineering takes science theory and makes it real. So I like that about engineering. There's a tangible product that you can use the science and math and all this stuff that you never thought you'd use like algebra (laughs) and, you know, makes it into something. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Have
3: you asked your mom after the fact now that you have a Ph.D. in this and you're sort of on board with the engineering thing? What made her decide that she wanted to bribe you that way? Why did she think you needed to do engineering and not business or engineering and not medicine or something else? You know,
4: I never asked her about it. My mother's an accountant, so that's where I get, like, my math skills from. And it's very funny because the way she kind of would keep me busy as a child was to give me math problems like we'd be on a car trip. And she'd tell me what time it is and how fast we were going and how many miles. And then she'd say, oh, figure out when we're going to get here, you know, get to where we're going. So I'd stop asking, are we there yet? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so I, she kind of gave me that love. And I don't even know if she knew what engineering was. I think she thought... This would be a job where you would never have to come back and live at my house.
3: <laughs> <laughs> she just knew that this, if you it had the well. tenacity for it, oh you gosh. would be set.
4: Yes. Okay. I think that was the premise that she knew. It's good in math. It's good in science. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure she knew that, you know, building bridges and that sort of thing. But, like, I don't think she ever thought that I would be at the place, like, doing the work I am doing now. So you're there. You're studying undergrad
3: engineering. And you're doing Navy ROTC. Yes, that was another bribe.
4: So What? The, yeah. Yeah. had no idea. Didn't want to be in Navy ROTC. Really? No, but funny story. So I'm going to add to my nerd cred here. I went to college when I was 15 years old. Wait, 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 wait. What? Yeah. See, <laughs> there's so much backstory here. So I can't believe you didn't lead with that. I tried. <laughs> no, that's right. I, I got stuff for the, this whole podcast. I got I to gotta med it out. You know, I okay, can't go okay, okay, with, okay, it, with okay. it all at once. That's fair. That's fair. So, Take your time. I come from a big family. I'm the youngest child, so I've always tried to do what everybody else was doing. And that includes education wise. So, but I kind of found my own niche because my brothers, none of my brothers and sisters were good at math or science. So I was like, ha ha, big family, (laughs) here I am. You know, my sister got good grades all around, my brother was kind of the bad boy. And, you know, (laughs) here I am trying to make a name for myself, coming in last. And so whenever they took classes, I wanted to take classes. And I found my niche in math and science. So my sister, I don't know, she was taking a night school class and I wanted to go hang out with her. So I decided to take a math class for night school I didn't need another math class. I just decided to take it. So <laughs> That is I, good nerd cred right yeah, there. Yeah, I just decided to take a math class. So here I am in this adult, you know, night school math class with people who are trying to make up a credit. And, you know, I'm helping them out with their math and that sort of thing. And so every opportunity I could, I took classes like summer school. So it ended up that by the time I was in 10th grade, I'd taken all my math and science classes that were required. So I doubled up. I was already one year year ahead. Um, So I doubled up on um, my English and my history and graduated. I didn't come from, I would say, the best neighborhood. So I was looking to get out anyway. And so I schemed just like I (laughs) schemed my GP. I'm a very good schemer. So I schemed to graduate early so that I could go away to college. And another bride, my mother said that okay, but I want you to make sure that you have structure when you go off to school. So, and they also offer a scholarship. So, join Navy ROTC. I said okay, you know, you're getting me a car. That's (laughs) that's great. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm out of here. I'm gonna have my car. And so I joined, and they have summer cruises. It's basically like a summer internship. And on this summer internship, I went aboard a submarine. and if you don't know, a submarine in the U.S. Navy is nuclear powered and it also has nuclear weapons on board. So at that point, psh, mind blown. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, nuclear? What is this? Give me more. And I mean, at this time, I'm, I'm like 17. Right. So, you know, this and this is one of those aha moments. You know, I'm sleeping between two missile silos. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> on a boat that, a, you know, an atom is powering. And I was like, give me more. Yes, please. And so I finished my undergrad degree and I decided to go to grad school for nuclear engineering, specifically to work in national security and nonproliferation. Because the dichotomy of, you know, this energy source being able to power a boat and blow stuff up, you know, we need people who have the know-how, the technical know-how to, you know, control that, to make sure it's used for good and not evil, you know, kind of Dr. Evil moi, kind of thing. <laughs> These are the things you think about, you know, when you're 17, 18. But it really has kind of fueled my career. Like, not everybody can do this, and I can, and I will. You know, that's what I thought. The Spider-Man thing of with great right. power. is great responsibility. There you go. Yeah.
2: I overheard someone at a bar quote that recently to someone else, and then he, like, came down to me, and I was like, oh, yeah, Spider-Man, and he was like, what? What are, you, what are you talking about? And I was like, never mind. Don't worry about it. And then he was like, oh, you mean that quote? And I was like, yeah, man, that's Come from on. Spider-Man. You got to know the origin. I think a lot of people think that it's got like a more literary
4: origin than that. Which, I mean, how how much more literary can you get than Stanley? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Really? Yeah. So. so then you're
3: doing your, your graduate work and you happen to be a stone's throw from Argonne. Tell folks who don't know what Argonne is. It's a pretty special place.
4: So Argonne is a Department of Energy sponsor laboratory research and development. So every time you hear a report by the DOE, that's pretty much a national lab. It's part, it's the brains of the of the national the national labs are the brains of the Department of Energy. Um, all the different departments and organizations in government have Contractors or labs that actually do the research, and they're more program managers. They direct the research. So all this good stuff that you know comes out, like the internet. <laughs> oh, I think I've heard of that. Al Gore made it, but <laughs> but it was doing, <laughs> just high level research that takes a lot of manpower. It takes a lot of brain power. Um, this little thing called the Manhattan Project, you know, mm-hmm. that was national lab developed. So we do big science at Argonne. We have all across the board biology. We have fuel cell technologies. A lot of the nuclear reactors were originally designed at Argonne. So, I mean, we're all across the board. We do big things. We just had um, Aurora, our new computer. So we're going petaflops there at Argonne. So it's high tech. It's leading edge. And we develop it and then we commercialize it and give it to the people and we help society that way.
3: So you could walk down the hall and there's literally people in every room who are working on something that five years from now might completely change a whole industry or be an invention that fuels homes or fuels cars or gets us to Mars or that's crazy. Yes,
4: yeah, so <laughs> the batteries that are in um, electric cars now, a lot of that technology came from Argonne. A lot of the um, pharmaceuticals, the research is done on our advanced photon source at Argonne. I mean, it's literally good stuff going on here. Still to come, Jatia Taylor's homework is actually a little less
2: homeworky and a little more quizzy, but swear it's fun.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: My name is Jatia. I was born and raised in Miami, Florida. I live in Chicago, Illinois now, and I am a nuclear engineer. I am generally attracted to smart people. I do heart nerds, too. Nerds are awesome. I am very much looking forward to the adventure of Survivor.
2: Back to our interview with Jatia Taylor. We will at some point have to talk about her time on Survivor. She is veritably a really good nerd. We'll talk to her a little bit about that whole pop science idea, too. Here's Jatia.
4: I work in nonproliferation. So, yes, of course, there's things that I can't talk about. I mean, there's a lot of good things that I can talk about, like a lot of the international cooperation that I uh, am involved with, which I meet some fascinating people. So part of my job is international engagement on safeguards and nonproliferation And it's just amazing how many brilliant people, not even in the U.S., but, you know, everywhere who are really, really making our world safe. And it's kind of funny because non-proliferation is like, it's so stealth. Like, did anything happen today? Yes, we won. I mean, like, how do you quantify it? <laughs> a lot of people are, are making the world a lot safer. And, you know, sometimes you don't even see it.
3: There's a, like a and a with you on the Argonne website, and I just wanted to ask you to talk a little more about this because it's just the nonchalant way that this sentence plays out is, my job is to analyze what the technology does and what it's used for, assess how it can be used, and determine its implications for weapons of mass destruction. Oh, that sounds terrifyingly important. <laughs> no big deal. So
4: sometimes I do. I like sit back and think about, oh, yeah, I work on, you know, like things that have to do with destroying people all day. And to me, it's work. And it's, it's what... I want to do. And it's the way that I help the world. But yeah, it does sound like, I don't know, <laughs> terrifyingly. It does, But I mean, it's, it's small pieces and you do your part and it goes into a larger picture. And the technology may be a little complicated, but I mean, everybody helps in their own way. And we all contribute to making the world a better place. And this is just the way that I do it.
3: And you also are really good at explaining this stuff to the general public and especially to kids. So the first time I saw you talk about this, it was at a event at a university called STEM Fest. And so uh, you and some of your colleagues from Argonne were doing what you called an energy slam. So you each got up and were sort of the cheerleader for a particular type of energy and you were doing nuclear energy and someone else was doing solar and someone else was doing wind and you sort of made a case and then by applause, the audience had to decide which their favorite was for that day. How did often, you win?
4: <laughs> I did. Yeah. You did?
3: Oh yeah. my goodness. She I was totally so won. Surprised.
4: <laughs> good, good.
3: I am not surprised. But how often do you do things like that as a part of your work at Argonne and how does it fit into your role, do you think, as a scientist to do that public outreach?
4: Well, I think all scientists are should have some responsibility for doing outreach, because as a scientist, you not only have to do the work, but you also have to make people care about your work. Because, you know, a lot of people think scientists just work in this bubble and it doesn't affect them. But it's really important to everybody. So it's good that scientists do outreach and explain I love to talk. I don't know if you can recognize that or not. That is like my favorite thing to do. I understand science, but I love to talk. So that's just something that comes very naturally to me. And I just think about when I was that age, like that is maybe that's where I'm like mentally stopped developing or something like that. Maybe I was like this super smart 13 year old and that's where I stopped. But I just think about where I was and, you know, what not what did I care about? But, you know, how did I interpret things? And kids are a lot smarter than we give them credit for, you know, but you you have to talk to them on their level. You know, you don't have to go into numbers and spectrums to understand nuclear science. You don't. I mean, I talk to kids groups. I do volunteer work, but also I talk to other people and international engagement. And even with them, sometimes you just have to simplify things. I mean, not that they don't understand, but it might be a language barrier or something like that. But there's all commonalities that we have. And I think as a scientist, if you can't explain your work to a 13-year-old, then I don't know if you really understand your work that well because it's science. It's the world. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's a huge necessity
2: that we're still kind of figuring out is how to make science not only relatable but also accessible and make it something that people can get excited about. Oh, yeah.
4: Yeah, everybody can get excited about science. I mean, science is everything. Right. It's the world. (laughs) I I talk to um, youth groups and I'm like, everything you like, there's some science behind it. You know, even if it's makeup and you think you're the girliest girl and you're so not into science... There's L'Oreal has a whole chemistry team and a chemical development and a product development. You know, so there's somebody who's working on making your lipstick last longer or making it plump your lips like Kim Kardashian and all the sisters who <laughs> are clearly have stock in L'Oreal. There's something in everything, the chair you're sitting in, the car you're driving. I know you want to use your phone, you know. Yeah. So there <laughs> is magic Internet in your pocket business, a whole lot of scientists made that. <laughs> right. So I just try to explain that science is everywhere. And I'm gonna get off my soapbox now. <laughs> and I'm down. Okay.
3: <laughs> Such a nerdy soapbox. We love it. So you also, I think, probably more than most are conscious of the fact that you're helping shape for, especially those kids, what a scientist looks like. Who maybe like in movies and in cartoons, and we're getting slightly better at how we represent science, slightly better. But usually it's a old white man with crazy hair and a lab coat and glasses, right? Like that's what a scientist is when you ask a kid to draw a scientist. How does it affect your public persona as a scientist to know that you're combating that stereotype all the time?
4: Well, I try to keep my hair crazy. <laughs> I don't want to disappoint. Good. Um, I do realize that I'm not what people would think of a scientist. And I do think it's important. I always try to tell people about my work and my background because It's going to take everybody to solve these problems. And I think if you have a homogeneous scientist population, it really narrows the thinking. If scientists are all from one group of people and one race and one gender, it really narrows how we think about problems because from a scientific perspective, you really just need to think about every single angle and every single solution because you have to go through a lot of ideas to get to a solution. And the more diversity you can bring to the ideas and diverse people to the ideas, I think it helps. So I am always very cognizant. And also a lot of times... People, you know, you get discouraged if you don't see somebody who looks like you, you know, doing something you want to do. You think, okay, that's not for me. I've definitely, you know, felt like that. They don't talk the way I talk. They don't look the way I look. They, You know, but I always tell them, you know, like I consider myself a girly girl sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm slipping. (laughs) But... I tell them, you you change science. Don't let science change you. You bring what you are. You know, you be a trailblazer and don't be apologetic for being who you are because that doesn't change who you are as a scientist. You still have great ideas. You can still do the work. You, as some people probably
3: already maybe know, were on Survivor. Yes. And we talk a lot on this show about that intersection between hard science and pop culture and that too often... We think of them as, like we were saying, completely separate worlds, completely separate things. How do you view the relationship between the hard science and the pop culture? What could we be doing more of? How could we be doing things differently when it comes to getting hard science in front of more people?
4: I do think that science has an image problem. They have an image problem and they have a communication issue. So anytime you can get some sort of science out there... And getting people to talk about it or think about it or even discuss why that was wrong yeah. is pretty good. In the U.S., what sexy sells? I mean, look at the Kardashians. Come on. It's really <laughs> nothing going on on there. I watch it. I'm so ashamed to admit it. I, but it's just fascinating because it's this unprecedented access that just draws people in, good or bad. Most people know what a Kardashian is. Right. Science doesn't, you know, sell itself like that. I Be- bet
3: you more people could name more Kardashians than they can name National Labs. Oh, definitely. <laughs>
4: like most <for> definitely. Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that's so depressing. It <laughs> is. I, I was just thinking about it. Yeah. But I mean, so so that's
3: what sells. This can since, we get the Kardashians to start naming their children after National Labs?
4: Probably. Like little baby them, Argon, little baby there Fermi. There you go. OK. I mean, that that oldest one is popping them out like Tic Tac. So <laughs> I'm sure. She's running out of names and ideas. So, so yeah, it has an image problem. I know that scientists don't think we should need to sell ourselves because it's science and it's it's theory and it's grounded in everything that is pure and it's too dignified yes, for such too things. Dignified for that, but this is how our society works. Was that part of
2: your reasoning for wanting to go on national television on I this wanted, ridiculous show?
4: I wanted to win a million dollars. That's fair. That's why I <laughs> totally went on fair. the show. I wanted to challenge myself. The same reason I like science. It's exciting. It's unknown. It's an adventure. You're challenging yourself. You're pitting yourself against the best. You know, this is a competition. It's the survival of the fittest. You have to get out there and show your stuff. Didn't do so well, you know, but I was starving and hungry. So that was the <laughs> element. But I mean, so I got painted as the mad scientist on that show. I'm, I'm OK with that. Sometimes I get mad. I am a scientist.
2: <laughs> there you go. There you go. Could be worse. Yeah. Could be way worse.
4: And now somebody knows a nuclear engineer. So, you know, what do they say? All all press is good press or all publicity is good publicity? One of those. There you go. I'm sure you guys know. It's <laughs> not know in Spider-Man quotes. No? <laughs> it's
3: not from Spider-Man, so, <laughs> so I, I have no familiar. idea.
2: <laughs> Jatia Taylor, thank you so much for talking with us.
4: Thank you very much. I so enjoyed this.
3: Thanks to Jatia for joining us. She has a homework assignment for you, and it's sort of a pop quiz scavenger hunt. There is a
4: common product in homes that uses a radioisotope for safety. The isotope is americium-241. So my homework to the Nerdette listeners is to find out what that household item is. Again, it's a safety item. I feel like I'm giving like... "Mm." I like it. I'm so
3: curious. And here's what I want to do to make sure that we know if people did their homework. I want them to tweet at you and us when they figure it out. So your Twitter handle is... At PhD J-T-I-A-PhD. And we are at Podcast. So when you figure it out, listeners, go ahead and tweet at us. Such a good assignment. You can
2: find links to all your homework assignments at com. Time for Nerd Confessions.
1: Hi, my name is John Peralt from Fairbanks, Alaska. Calling with my nerd concession of the time I was so nerdy, I even irritated the other nerds at Space Camp. And during Space Camp, one of the things you do for the entire week is you run a simulation of a flight, and you're each assigned different roles. And then you practice this, basically reading off of a script, and then run it at the end of the week. And depending on how well your quote-unquote mission goes you can win against other groups in the camp. And during all the practices, every time I was supposed to say Roger, I would repeat Roger Dodger, thanks to my dad teaching me one of his great dad jokes. So I would say Roger Dodger every time and they would get so upset with me, these other kids, when I was Roger Dodger. And eventually we ran the mission and it went fine. And everybody gets a sweet Cute or lapel pin of a space shuttle at the end anyway just for participating and that's the story of the time that i would irritate even the other nerds at space camp thanks
2: (laughs) john Peral. i think you already know this but you are one of my most favorite nerds there are so many things about this confession that i love lapel
3: pins lapel pins
2: To even that first sentence of like, I irritated all the other nerds at space Game. So nerdy that you irritated the nerds at space (laughs) game Like just the levels of that sentence make me (laughs) so
3: happy. (laughs) Gold star to John. And if you want a gold star listener, all you have to do is call and leave your nerd confession. It's got to be about when you were at your nerdiest. Everything from epic fails to humble brags. Welcome. 312-600-5638. Trisha, I wonder if we
2: need to make like gold star lapel pins. Oh,
3: that's a lovely idea. That would be kind of cool, huh? I
2: think we should. Let's look into that. 312-600-5638 again is the number to call.
3: You can call and leave your nerd confession or suggest a great lady nerd of history for us to profile. Or just say hi. We really do love to hear from you. Thanks again to Jatia Taylor for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to our Game of Thrones recaps every Monday with Peter Sagal. Next week on Nerdette.
1: We need to reassess our relationship with failure. If you go to almost every successful person there ever was and just talk to them about their lives, they have failed multiple times. It may be that success is not that you're good at something, but that you are not brought down by having failed at something.
3: That's Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson, you guys. Next yep. week on Nerdette. Yep, that's happening. This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson.
2: With help from podcast proliferation expert Joe Dessau and his two minions, Colleen Pellissier and Brad Helm. I'm sorry to call you guys minions. It's rude.
3: But think of it in the Despicable Me way. Those are fun minions. Yeah, those
2: guys are awesome. (laughs)
3: Find links to all the things, including the sign-up for our weekly email newsletter at nerdatpodcast.com.
2: You can listen to us wherever you're listening to us because you're already listening to us, but we would appreciate it if you took the dive and subscribed to us on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or wherever it is
3: that you're listening. We share links to things we love on Facebook, which you can see if you like us there. We're on Twitter, at nerdatpodcast.
2: We're also at nerdatpodcast on Instagram, which is where I write pocket-sized book reviews. It's a great place to peruse and see what you should be reading. Chicago
3: Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org.
2: Throw us some stars and write a review if you're feeling generous, like the excellent
3: Jess did on iTunes. Jess PT, Jess PT. <laughs> Jess part-time. Jess <laughs> <Just> part-time Jessica. <laughs> part-time Jess. <laughs> Jess PT. There's one other way you can help
2: NerdNet. If you're a nerd with a business or you work for one that wants to get your message heard by NerdNet listeners, you can underwrite this show. Email nerdetpodcast at gmail.com to learn more about sponsorship
3: opportunities. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO Original Limited series.